Happy Easter to everyone. Welcome here. We are going to take a break for one Sunday from our series in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at the resurrection today uh, to acknowledge Easter, to acknowledge the significance of Easter on the Christian calendar. Uh, It's a really big deal, as you all know. So uh, for today, we're going to be looking at the resurrection specifically from Acts chapter 4. So if you want to turn there, go to Acts 4, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses today. So I'll give you a minute to get there, and then I'll ask, as usual, for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. These are the words of God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And you can be seated. So as we know, Easter is a high point on the Christian calendar. It's right up there with Christmas. I suppose we could argue that it's maybe even in some ways more significant than Christmas. But we have these milestones on our calendar to help us uh, think about the gospel, all the things that go into the gospel being possible for us. Uh, Christ has to come to earth. We celebrate that at Christmas. Uh, but then his work is, uh, reaches its high watermark at, uh, at Easter. Uh, and, but even then, there's uh, echoes that happen after Easter that are also highly significant. Pentecost and Ascension Day uh, are also significant, significant events on the Christian calendar uh, when we think about them. But today we want to look at the resurrection because that's what happened today. And Jesus himself agrees with the Old Testament prophets that this part of his ministry is a very crucial part. This is why he came. He came to do this. And Jesus, in the days leading up to his death and to his resurrection, prophesies this about himself in agreement with what the Old Testament prophets saw as well. For example, in Matthew 20, Jesus says, or Matthew tells us, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. When we look at the truth of Jesus' resurrection, we're looking at an event that is both historically accurate, it historically happened, it's an actual event, but it's also one that has more significance than just a day that you put on the calendar to commemorate other historical events. So the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we can't stress this enough, it happened in time and in place. This is not a spiritual event, even though there's spiritual significance, but the, the significance of it is much more than marking on a calendar when a certain prime minister was elected, or when a certain war ended or when a nation came into existence. Those are all historically factual things that you can put on a calendar, like you can the resurrection of Jesus, but the significance of Jesus' resurrection makes it an event altogether unlike these other things uh, that we can circle a day on the calendar to commemorate. The fact that Jesus came out of the tomb actually gives us the entire meaning of all history. This event changes the entire world. And I said this a few days ago, and I want to flesh it out here today, but I really want you to think about this. The world can never be the same again after Jesus steps out of the tomb. 
When the Son of God comes victorious over death, the world is not the same place ever again. It cannot be. And we know that all of human history is, in fact, measured by Jesus. For those of us who grew up before about 15 minutes ago, we all remember dates are calculated by B.C. and A.D., right? Before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. Uh, Because everything exists in reference to Jesus Christ. And of course, today, our intellectual superiors want to change that. Uh, What do we see now, right? We see B.C.E. and C.E., the common era and before common era. They, They want to erase the memory that history is measured by Jesus Christ. But even that game isn't successful because the year zero <laughs> still remains zero because this is when Christ entered human history. Okay? So you, you can run, but you can't hide from the fact that Jesus is the marker of history. And so if people insist on using BCE and CE, then you just need to do a, a, a game in your head and think of it, okay, yeah, of course, BCE, before Christ's empire, and CE, Christ's empire. Right? So now we are living in the days of Christ's empire, CE. See, we can, we can work with this stuff. It just takes a little bit of extra work on our part. But it is important for us to remember that the resurrection is a historical fact. And if that sounds like I'm stressing that for no reason, it's really, really, really important that we don't lose sight of this. Because many people, many Christians, uh, many professing great theologians often play a game with the resurrection. Many of you have maybe heard of the name Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a Swiss theologian in the middle part of the 1900s and is respected by many. But he started talking in a funny way about the resurrection. And people started to be suspicious. What do you mean when you talk that way? Because it wasn't making sense. And finally, in one exchange, uh, Cornelius Van Til, who was a theologian at the same time, asked him, He put the question well. He said, okay, Dr. Bart, if there was a camera recording in Jesus' tomb at Easter, what would that camera have seen? And Karl Bart's answer was nothing. It wouldn't have seen anything because Jesus didn't rise from the dead. However, Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) I experience him now. I get warm feelings in my heart when I think about Jesus. So the spirit of Jesus lives on in his church today. That's what Karl Barth meant with the resurrection. And that is a devastating error. Okay? When we say Jesus rose from the dead, we mean a man with skin and bones got out of a tomb after conquering death. This isn't just a spiritual truth that we feel in our hearts. This is a historical event. It happened at a place that you can find on Google Maps. It happened on a day on the calendar. This is a historically factual event, and we cannot ever lose sight of that or spiritualize this truth. Spiritually significant, yes, but because it happened in history, at a time, at a place. We cannot lose sight of that. But it's not like just any other historical event. As I said, the resurrection is kind of like the Word of God. It's kind of like Scripture in the sense that it is the highest event to which you can appeal. Right? Uh, we can't appeal to something else to prove the Bible, Because the minute we appeal to something higher than the Bible to prove the Bible, what have we done? We've said whatever we're appealing to is higher than the Bible, (laughs) right? Uh, And likewise, we can't appeal to something aside from the resurrection to prove the resurrection because what we're essentially saying is my sense perception is more accurate than the resurrection, okay? The, The thing that we appeal to is our highest authority, and there is no higher authority than God acting in human form 
in the resurrection or the word of God. So this isn't just an event that we need to prove. It's the event that proves everything else. The resurrection is the proof. Okay? The resurrection proves that Christ says who he said he was. The resurrection proves that the Father's wrath has been fully spent and satisfied in Christ. The resurrection proves that we too will be resurrected one day and that we are, in fact, designed to live forever. The resurrection is what powers the preaching of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, which we just read. And the impact of their preaching is further proof that the same spirit which God used to raise Jesus from the bed from the dead, is making sure that the gospel does its work as it goes on in the days of the apostle and down to today. So when we think about the Spirit's work in the resurrection, or really all through the book of Acts, what we're looking at is one long, sustained push by the Holy Spirit through the entire book of Acts. Romans 8.11 says that it was the Spirit who raised Jesus back to life, and this is the very same Spirit who came in Acts chapter 2 to bring the gospel in every tongue Uh, to prove that the gospel was for all the nations, for every tongue, tribe, and nations. And in Acts 3, Jerusalem is quickly becoming a very controversial powder keg as as Peter tells the crowd that they are responsible for Jesus' death. This is the same spirit doing all of these things. This is one long, sustained push to get the gospel out into the world. And we, when we think about Jesus dying, we may wonder, how is it possible for the Son of God to die? But the Bible tells us that that's the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, how is it possible for the Son of God to stay dead? How could he stay dead? We know that the curse of God's wrath is satisfied because Jesus walks right into it. And that's why Jesus also had to die. How will Jesus conquer death unless he walks right into the belly of this beast to conquer it for us? Death is defeated and destroyed in the same way that God's wrath is, by Jesus walking right into it. And you see types and shadows of this all through redemptive history. Just like Jonah had to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, in the belly of the beast, before he comes back, so does the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. Christ goes into the belly of death, and he proves his authority over it when he comes walking out victorious three days later. The resurrection is the proof that God is satisfied with Jesus' payment and that death has once and for all been defeated. And in verses 1 and 2 here, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The priests were evidently able to overhear Jesus preaching, and they were annoyed And specifically, they were annoyed. You see this building in chapter 3, in verses 13, 14, and 17. Jesus blames them, or Peter blames them for the death of Jesus. So the tension is already building. This room is filling up with fumes, just waiting for a match to go off. And the captain here is second in command only to the high priest. So we have people in high positions getting annoyed as this pressure is building and building and building. And when we read about the Sadducees, maybe we're familiar with some of these names, but we don't know what all these groups were, uh, it's important to, uh, to know who's who in the story here. 
So uh, the Sadducees are those men who hold power in the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council, kind of the political ruling council. Uh, And the Sadducees predominantly held positions in that council. Uh, Because the Jews had kind of divided into four separate groups. There was the Zealots, and these were the revolutionary type of people who wanted to start a war with the Romans. They were going to do this by force. They were going to take Jerusalem back. And you can see uh, the analog to our own time. Some Christians kind of have this revolutionary spirit in them like the Zealots. Then there were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees started off actually as good guys. Uh, They started off desiring to be... uh, conservative people who believed in the scriptures, but they quickly turned inward and legalistic and they started adding to the law of God uh, and they became a spiritually dead group of hypocrites. And we all know how much Jesus clashed with the Pharisees. And then there were the Essenes. And these were the people who were going to be really spiritual by just withdrawing from the world. Right? That's how you live the Christian life. Uh, that's how you please God is just vanish from the world and make no impact whatsoever. Okay? Uh, and we see that uh, approach taken by Christians today. These were the Essenes. And who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the liberals of their day. They rejected almost the entirety of the Old Testament canon. They basically held just to the first five books of Moses and nothing else. So they had as much respect for Scripture as our current-day liberals do. They further did not believe in the resurrection. Almost all the Jews did have a hope in a future resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The Sadducees did not believe in personal evil and personal good uh, in the form of God and Satan. Uh, It was just kind of this moralism, uh, and we see much of that today. And they did not believe that there would be life after death. They did not believe in the resurrection. So much like modern-day theological liberalism or theological softness, they did their best to blend their old religion that they learned from their grandparents with whatever the prevailing attitude of the day was. They tried to blend this into a culturally acceptable mix that was still kind of Judaism, but really it wasn't. But because of their compromise, that did mean that they got to take positions of privilege. They got to serve in the Sanhedrin because they were respected by the pagan authorities uh, because they were the kind of Jews who weren't really Jews, right? And how much do we uh, see that today? The Christians who aren't really Christians are able to get to positions of power, right? Uh, Those who really mean it when they say things, of course, are marginalized. But in the case of the Sadducees, their privileged position meant that they could work closely with the Romans to protect their economic and political interests. And they had a real interest in keeping things real quiet in Jerusalem. Don't disrupt the apple cart. And as the tension's building, they have the most to lose. If Jerusalem's about to come unwound because of what the apostles are preaching about Jesus, these are the guys who are going to lose. And as I mentioned, the majority of the Jews did, in fact, believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. And there are indications, actually, if you're reading the book of Jonah, there's indications that actually make it possible, or maybe even likely, that Jonah actually died in the fish and was resurrected again. In Hebrews 11, verse 9, we have language that expects that when Abram was about to go offer Isaac as a sacrifice, he actually expected to kill him, but there's the expectation that Isaac would be raised back to life. So Abram has a hope in a resurrection. He's, he's trusting that he will see Isaac again, not because Isaac will be spared, but because Isaac will be resurrected. So the concept of resurrection does clearly exist in the Old Testament. And also working with this Old Testament understanding 
Uh, when Jesus comes to raise Lazarus, uh, when he's talking to the sisters, Martha clearly expects that one day Lazarus will be resurrected. She's not expecting Jesus to do it that day, but the way she talks is clear. She does have hope in a future resurrection. So the Jewish hope does involve future resurrection. This is something uh, that we see dimly in the Old Testament, but it is most certainly there. And look closely at the language of verse 2. It says that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And notice this closely. They weren't just saying that Jesus himself was resurrected. And they also weren't saying that the righteous are resurrected because of their righteousness. What they're proclaiming is that humans will be resurrected, but their resurrection will be on the basis that their resurrection is in Jesus. It's connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Christians are resurrected because we have died to our old nature in Adam, and we have been made alive and declared righteous in Jesus. All of our covenant curses got put on him as our scapegoat. And then after he suffered those curses, uh, both in his life and then ultimately in his death, the, the penalty is paid in full and he is able to come back to life. And the coming back to life demonstrates many truths. Again, God is satisfied with the penalty. Raising Christ back to life vindicates the perfection of the man who made the payment. And because Jesus went through death and then back to life on our behalf, he also serves as our older brother. He walked through ahead of us. And we see that language in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 20 to 23, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And so the significance of Jesus' resurrection is that he appears in the middle of history, the hinge of history, but then he reaches forward in a sense and he pulls up the end of history with him when he rises back from the dead. There's so much deep symbolism of what's happening with Jesus surrounding his death and resurrection that a morning like this we can only just barely begin to scratch the surface, but we will try to scratch the surface. In John 19, verse 17, we read, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Jesus is crossified on a cross of wood that gets impaled into this hill that is a skull. Okay? His cross impales a skull. And this is reminiscent of the words that Tim read this morning from the curse in Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The cross of Jesus gets pounded into a skull, reminiscent of this promise. It's the serpent who walked into his own trap in this event and in the garden. And if the authorities that be knew what they were doing when they crucified Jesus, they wouldn't have done it. What is the cross of Jesus other than their undoing? They walked into their own trap. Putting Jesus on the cross is the undoing of evil. 
The evil forces put him there not knowing that this was the weapon by which they would ultimately be destroyed. And that's why it says in the Bible that they wouldn't have done it if they understood the significance of what they were doing. And when Jesus is put to death and his cross crushes this skull, this place of the skull, this mountain, we have to think, why is it called that? Well, one, I don't know if any of you have seen a picture of the place of the skull, but the rock structure does actually look like a skull. It looks like a a human's head, uh, at the the historic site of the crucifixion. But there's also tradition about this place. Uh, And we don't have this specifically in the Bible, but the tradition among the Jews, and that was held onto even in the early church, was that Noah took the the head or the skull of Adam with him on the ark, and that after the ark had landed, Shem went and buried Adam's skull at this site. Again, we don't have a chapter and verse for this, but this is the tradition among the Jews. And... If that is true, and I don't know if it is or not, it's a tradition, so take it for what it's worth. Uh, But if it is, there's another significance, another layer of significance to the place here, and how the seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent. But there's another fascinating layer here that comes uh, on the account uh, of David and Goliath and how it's significant to Golgotha, or to the place of the skull. So not only is David's, uh, the physical many times grandfather to Jesus, but he very clearly serves as a type of Jesus, right? David is a shepherd king, just like his grandson Jesus is going to be. He is a ruler of Israel, just like his grandson is going to be. David is a type of Christ. And early in his career, when he goes out to fight Goliath, we read about Goliath of Gath, the champion of the giants. But these giants... Uh, sometimes the way the Old Testament talks, it almost sounds like it's kind of like a Narnia or a Lord of the Rings type of planet, the way it talks about weird stuff. But these giants are spoken of in the Old Testament as a hybrid between humans and fallen angels. They're wicked people. These giants descend from the ungodly family lines of the Old Testament. And so the contest of David and Goliath is actually a typological contest between the seed of the woman, David, and the seed of the serpent, Goliath, who descends from uh, these fallen angel hybrids uh, that become giants. And notice also, think again about David's method of killing the giant. He sinks a rock into his forehead. He crushes his skull. And then, this is the part that I learned from the story by reading the Bible and not by having the... uh, sanitized Sunday school version, Uh, but I remember clearly reading this account for the first time in the Bible by myself. Uh, The part I didn't know is that David goes to Goliath's dead body, pulls his sword out of his sheath, and then cuts Goliath's head off with his own sword. Okay, and does anyone know what happens next? David cuts the head of the giant off, and then in 1 Samuel 17 verse 54, it says that David carries Goliath's head back to Jerusalem and puts it on display on this mountain, on this place, the place of the skull, in victory of uh, Israel over her enemies, the victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. And this is another reason why it's called the place of the skull. But the other name, okay, so we know about Goliath from Gath, and, and the root words for Goliath is Gola, and from Gath is Gatha. Goliath of Gath, Gola Gatha, Golgotha, okay? This is the meaning of this place. This is the meaning of this mountain. And so when Adam's disobedience at the tree is undone by Christ's obedience on this tree, the contest between the seed of the woman 
and the seed of the serpent reaches its ultimate climax. Christ's heel is indeed bruised by the nails that held him to the tree. But as the blood flows down into the same skull that the cross has impaled, we are taken back through history, through David and Goliath, all the way back to the garden, and the promise that the serpent would be crushed once and for all. And over Good Friday, we also have reminders about Christ's crown of thorns. What's the meaning of that? Well, if you're a Roman, all it means is that you're mocking this man for being a king, and they don't believe you. It's a sarcastic symbol of torture. That's all it means to the people doing it. What about from God's standpoint? What's the significance? What's the story that God is telling here? Well, we also read about that this morning. In Genesis 3, in the curse, there's the warning that life would be hard and that thistles would curse the ground. And the fact that Christ very literally takes this curse upon his head is another reminder that he is the second and greater Adam to get us out from this curse. We also have many accounts of Jesus coming out of his tomb. And I want to stop and consider a strange detail that you've probably read a hundred times in John's Gospel, in John 20. But I want to pay special attention to something unique here. In John 20, 11 through 15, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Supposing him to be the gardener. Didn't she know what he looked like? She told her, What? A gardener? She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Why did she think he was a gardener? The first person to encounter the risen Christ was Mary Magdalene. It happened in a garden. At first, Mary thought Jesus was a gardener. A logical mistake. Maybe a prophetic mistake. Maybe a beautiful mistake. And, from the standpoint of God's providence, not a mistake at all. On Good Friday, Jesus was buried in a garden. A garden is a place to cultivate and grow living things. An appropriate place for Jesus to be buried. And a few days after, before his crucifixion, Jesus had said, unless a seed falls into the ground and it dies, it, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So on Holy Saturday, the Son of God was a holy seed put to rest in a garden. On Easter Sunday, the garden brought forth the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus Christ declared to be the Son of God by resurrection from the dead. The first seed raised by God in the garden of resurrection became the gardener. When Mary Magdalene supposed him to be the gardener, she was exactly right. Jesus is now the gardener of the resurrection. He is cultivating new life in all who believe. The first Adam was a gardener who failed at his task and the world became a vast wasteland of sin and thistles. But the second Adam succeeds in his task. Christ is restoring the ruined garden. 
And with Christ as the gardener of the resurrection, of the new creation, we have a very hopeful outlook on the future. Commenting on this, G.K. Chesterton says, On the third day, the friends of Christ, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. It was the world that had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but now in the dawn. Think of what we all miss when we treat the Old Testament stories as moral fables, Aesop's fables. But for Christians, think of what we miss. We miss all this deep imagery. We miss all the story that God has taken thousands of years to tell us. How can we do that? Okay, the Bible is not a story about me or you. It's a story about Jesus. We need to read it that way. Read your Old Testament as though it's talking about Jesus because it is. Don't turn this into Aesop's fables. Okay? Yes, there's moral uh, lessons to be learned, but that's not what it's about. It's telling us a story of Jesus. See Jesus in your Old Testament, please. That's what it's going to. This is what makes the, resurrec- the resurrection make sense. And so the resurrection of Jesus in the garden here gives a picture of two different worlds being contrasted with each other around him. He is killed in the old world. Jesus is killed in the world of corruption and death and thistles. But he steps out of the tomb into a world which is being made new. In Romans 6 verse 4 it says that we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A new world is waiting for Jesus when he steps out of the tomb. And this isn't the first time we read about this, if you, uh, about the succession of worlds, an old world system passing away and a new one taking its place. Peter uses this language regarding Noah. If you uh, go to 2 Peter 3, verses 6 and 7, Peter's looking at this time and he says, the world that then, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Okay? The world that Noah grew up in got destroyed. It doesn't exist anymore. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Peter lives in a different world than, Moses, or than Noah did. Noah steps onto the ark out of one world, and he steps out of the ark into a new world. Something has changed. Okay? And I would suggest that the exact same is the true Uh, of Jesus stepping out of one world and then into a new world when he gets out of the tomb. Not only in Noah's case would the world have looked drastically different. Think of what all that water would have done. Surely the world looked drastically different. But a new spiritual reality had also been advanced. The purposes of God to save his people had advanced. It had taken a step forward. And so how much more so is this true with the resurrection of Jesus? The fact that Jesus steps out of the tomb into a new creation is also why the Christian Sabbath has been moved from the seventh day to the first. Why do Christians get together on Sunday? It's not the Sabbath. If you know your Bible, you know the seventh day is the Sabbath, but Christians have been meeting since the book of Acts on the first day. What's up with that? This is what's up with that. 
The resurrection happened on a Sunday, and that's why we call it the Lord's Day. The church has always met on Sunday instead of Saturday because the resurrection happens on the first day to mark this new creational reality. We are at a new stage in history. And the seventh-day Sabbath has us working in order to get to our rest. We work and then we rest. A first day, Lord's Day, has us resting so we can go out and do our work. Do you see the difference? You see the difference? You're either working for your rest or you're working out of your rest. And for those of us who know Jesus, who have been made new, we are working out of that rest. We're not working for uh, God's acceptance. We're working out of God's acceptance. We're making it real out of our fingertips because God has accepted us in his son. So knowing that this old world of death and decay and corruption was about to suffer its final death blow, are we better able to also understand why there is such an intensity of demonic activity around the life of Jesus? There's such an intensity there that you don't read about in the epistles. You don't read about it afterward. Why, why so intense right then? And we might think of it, if the forces that be, if the forces of darkness know that their reign is coming to an end, of course they're going to put up a big fight. Think of a hockey team that has to pull the goalie with 30 seconds left, and it gets frantic for 30 seconds because they know they're about to lose. Okay? Uh, it makes sense that there's an intensity of demonic activity in and around the life of Jesus because the forces of darkness know they've been snookered. They walked into the trap that God set for them, and Jesus is about to destroy death. They're scrambling. But we look around, and we still see so much sin and corruption left in this world. In what sense can it even be a new creation? And I think there's several ways we can think about this. Uh, if you think back to pictures of World War II, you see the boats landing in Normandy. On D-Day, everything changed on D-Day. The war was settled on D-Day. At that point, there's no chance uh, that Germany and her allies are going to win. The war's over. But it took a long time before there was a formal declaration of surrender. The war was decided then, but it works itself out. The formal surrender comes later. Think even about a wedding ceremony. When does a couple get married? When are they united to each other? Is it when the engagement ring goes on? Is it when they walk up to the front of the church? Is it when they say their vows? Is it when they put on their wedding rings? Is it when the minister says, I pronounce you man and wife? Is it at the reception when everyone can congratulate them? Is it when they get announced by their new name? Is it later on when they go consummate their vows? When are they married? Okay. God often likes to fulfill things in layers or in steps. Okay? The new world has been established. Landfall has been made by the kingdom of God, but it's clearly not yet finished. There is much work to do. But it is working itself out slowly until we all get to that point of the wedding feast of the Lamb, at which point it is consummated. When Jesus returns, it is done in its full reality. We just see a glimpse of it right now. So you can think of it like a little stone chip that ends up on your windshield in winter and it spends all winter slowly spreading out across your entire windshield. Or on a cold morning, if you light a little paper and you go fire up the wood stove and you come back a few hours later and the living room is warm from a roaring fire, it's the same fire that you started with on this little paper. It's just had time to do its work. Okay? This is how we need to think about Jesus conquering death and ushering in the new creation. It happens in steps. It doesn't come in like the 82nd Airborne and clean everything up in three minutes. It works slowly. It works in steps. 
And then in verses 3 and 4, as we read on, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the reason that the apostles are put in custody is because they were arrested in the evening, so the council had already gone home, and they're not going to hold court in the evening. It was against their rules. So the Sanhedrin is going to convene and decide the case in the morning, which is why they go into custody overnight. But while they're in jail, you can put the apostles in jail, but they found out quickly you cannot put the Holy Spirit in jail. Because while they were sitting there, the church is exploding. The emphasis here is on 5,000 men. Okay? And, that, and, and the, the fact that it singles out men probably means heads of households. So the number of the church may very well be three or four or five times that number. Okay? 5,000 men. How many women and children come along with those men? Something big is happening in Jerusalem. The temple authorities could put Christ's ministers in jail, but the work of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, pushes ahead. And it's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that fell upon the believers at Pentecost, that gave boldness to the apostles to preach, and it is that same spirit at work today, planting the gospel into the hearts of people, making eyes to see and unstucking ears so we can hear the gospel, taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh so we can see that all of a sudden the gospel starts to make sense. Why? Not because the words in the Bible have changed, but because I've got a new heart. How did that get there? Why do my eyes suddenly see? Why do I want the gospel? Why am I convicted that I'm a great sinner and I need a great salvation? That's because of the Holy Spirit. And that's the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead on Sunday. This is all part of one long, sustained push in history. And the pattern of the apostles' preaching, notice how bold they are. You know they don't sit down with the ruling atheist of the day and and then work through slowly but surely, and, and after a great debate, then they decide, you know what, yeah, all things considered, it does seem that it is 37% more likely that the resurrection happened than that it didn't. Well, how convicting, right? They don't make their case to the resurrection, they make their case from the resurrection. Jesus lives. He rose from the dead. That's the proof. That's not the thing to be proven. It's the proof. He is who he said he was. Okay? Uh, and, we, of course, the evidence does support the resurrection. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that there's not evidence that supports it. Of course it does, because it's real. So we should expect the evidence to support it. It's how we think about this in our head. What's dependable? My interpretation of facts? My sense perception? Is that what's dependable? And then once I'm satisfied, then God is telling the truth? Or is God just telling the truth and I need to submit to it? Okay? Unbelieving eyes are not open to evidence. Evidence is not neutral. Evidence is never neutral. Nothing is neutral. It either exists in submission to Christ or in submission to you. But there are no neutral facts anywhere in this world, and we need to come to grips with that. The disciples don't treat this like it's a neutral event that you can take it or leave it. They're arguing from the resurrection, not to it. One way you can think of this is, uh, now I lost my spot in my notes here. Um, One one debate that I watched, Dr. Greg Bonson, the Christian apologist, and uh, Gordon Stein, you can find it on YouTube, it's it's called The Great Debate. Uh, And at one point, Gordon Stein, 
the atheist, says, you know what, I would actually believe you if you could ask your God, right now, Dr. Bonson, ask your God to come here and raise this podium to the roof, then I'll believe. Then I'll believe. Show me something supernatural, then I'll believe you that your God exists. And I think Bonson's response was biblically correct. He said, no, you wouldn't. If God did that right now, you would not believe. You would go to the chalkboard explaining all the physical phenomena and the atmospheric pressure and everything else that made it happen. Why? Because before you get to any evidence, your mind is already made up. God does not exist. God is not operating in this world. You know that before you examine the evidence. Therefore, the way you examine the evidence will not be neutral. It won't be. Uh, Think of uh, Lazarus' resurrection. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And keep in mind, the neighbors that were there were just at this guy's funeral. They saw their friend Lazarus dead. They were at his funeral. He goes into the tomb. He's dead. He's our friend Lazarus that we saw last week. And Jesus raises him out of that tomb. Lazarus come out. He comes out, bound in his grave clothes, gets unwrapped, and he's walking around. And then what does it say? Many of the people believed. Many? They all saw him dead four days ago, and many of the people believed? Why not 100%? If evidence was neutral, which it's not, everyone would have believed. But it says many believed. Okay? Because making a determination isn't an intellectual process, it's a moral one. It's a moral one. Okay? And if you have it in your heart to disbelieve God, no evidence will be compelling ever. Right? And in Jesus' parable uh, about the man who comes back from the dead, uh, remember his brothers were, were suffering, and then they said, well, you know, raise us from the dead, and then our brothers will believe. What does Jesus say? No, they won't. They won't believe. They've got Moses and the prophets. If they see a man come back from the dead, they will not believe. Right? What's Moses and the prophets? It's the scriptures. They've had the scriptures their whole life. If they don't believe the Bible, they won't believe their eyes. Because their eyes, frankly, are less dependent than the Bible is. Immediately after Jesus' resurrection in Acts 1, it says that Jesus did present many infallible proofs of his resurrection as he preached the kingdom. And in John 20, Thomas gets a a visual picture and he can touch Jesus' wounds. He gets evidence. He does see it. But then Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see, but believe. They are blessed. And so we should not be of the mindset that it would be easier to believe if we had been there and seen it with our eyes. We're actually in a better position today. We live in a time where Christ has ascended back to heaven, where he's ruling heaven and earth, and he has sent his spirit and his word to give evidence to this. We have the eyes of faith, that we have something more sure than our personal experience, Peter uses this language in his epistle as well. When he's talking about how scripture's inspired, he says, I was an eyewitness to all this stuff, but now we have a more sure word. The words of scripture. Scripture is more sure than your first-hand experience. Your eyes lie to you. Your ears lie to you. Your memory is fallible. Our sense perception is not perfect. Okay? It lies to us. We have something more sure, which is the word of God. The word of God is the proof, not the thing to be proven. So if we establish that the resurrection is significant, let's think further of its meaning. When our first parents fell into sin, God warned them that on the day that they ate, they would surely die. And yet they kept living. So what happened? Well, in one sense, they did die immediately. Their spiritual death was instant. They were separated from God. 
But that spiritual reality sets about a, a series of events by which decay culminates in the death of their bodies. This unnatural separation of body from soul. We talk about death as though it's natural because that's all we've ever experienced. But death is absolutely not natural. We were designed to live forever. Death is a corruption. There's nothing more unnatural in this world than death. It's an enemy. But redemption follows the same pattern in reverse. Resurrection starts as a spiritual rebirth, being put back in union with Christ, with God. And he adopts us back into his family. He calls us his sons and daughters. But then this spiritual reality sets a process about a a chain of events of putting things back together, which culminates in the marriage of body and soul like it did for Jesus. A physical man walking out of a tomb. Body and soul are knit back together. Those things that were separated at death. And we still look forward to that day. One day our graveyards will open up and spit the bodies of the dead back out, just like the tomb of Jesus did. So, in my case, or in the case of us here, Grandma Keeley, Grandma Unger, Grandma Plett, Grandma Dirksen, all our loved ones are spiritually present with the Lord right now. And the Bible tells us very little about what they're experiencing. It's temporary, it's weird. They're spiritually with the Lord, but we don't know how exactly. But the ultimate hope The last chapter is still ahead of them. The final hope is the resurrection. They're going to be put back together. Body and soul knit back together. Never to see corruption ever again. In this fallen world, marriage is far too often the precursor to divorce. But in a resurrection world, divorce is the precursor to marriage. And this is why history begins, but then it ends with a wedding feast that is far superior to the one we started with. This is the meaning of resurrection. Resurrection is the process by which things are put back together, by which they're being made new, and by which they become eternally uncorruptible. Our older brother Jesus walked right into the belly of death in order to break it apart, to blow it up. And he did this to make sure that we don't have to go there alone. He did this to pave a way out of that grave for us, and a way into the new heavens and the new earth to see his glory and to enjoy him forevermore. So if you're here and you do not know the Lord, don't harden your heart today. Seek the Lord while he lives, while he can be found, while you live. Ask him for forgiveness. Come to him to be dressed. Follow him out of the grave, because we are surely all going to go there. And if you do know the Lord Jesus, then be encouraged by the fact that you are moving along according to plan. You are on this path of being made new. And slowly but surely... The Lord is preparing you for future glory where you will enjoy him forever when you burst out of your grave, body and soul back together, prepared to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for resurrection power. Thank you that that is the final word and not death. Lord, thank you for sending your son. And that same power that raised him from the dead is here today, this morning, impressing the gospel into our hearts. Lord, either by opening eyes of those who have not yet seen you, Lord, we pray that they would see you this morning, that they would turn away from themselves and to you, that they would latch on to your promises uh, so that they know they can follow you out of the grave and into the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. 
Lord, and for those who are here, then let this be a reminder of our assurance. Your promises are sure. Lord, neither height nor depth, nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you that you have called us to yourself, that you have knit us together with you, and that we will follow you out of the grave, that you have the last say, and you will put all things to right. Lord, we thank you for that this Easter morning, and we pray that we would go out in resurrection power as we tackle all of our tasks that you have given us on this earth. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. We pray this all in the powerful name of the risen Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. So the charge is this. In taking a crown of thorns, by following Jonah into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, by having his heel bruised as he crushed the head of the serpent, finalizing the war his grandfather David started, by experiencing the trauma of having body and soul torn apart, Jesus assumes every covenant curse that God ever threatened against his people. Because his payment was adequate, and because his, his death and the men who sentenced Jesus to death couldn't have the final say, the Spirit vindicates Jesus by knitting his body and soul back together, resurrecting him out of the grave. By stepping out of the world of sin and corruption and into a garden of new life, Jesus establishes the new order in which death no longer reigns. He is pleased to work this new reality out gradually and slowly, starting with the new birth of the soul and culminating in us following our older brother out of the grave and into a new heaven and new earth, body and soul knit back together to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24. So receive God's words. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each according to his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Go in peace.